This morning I want to share with you some verses of Scripture found in the 6th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, beginning our reading with the 19th verse, in which Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust doth not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasury is, there will your heart be also. Now I call your very special attention this morning to these words of Jesus. As he said, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. One morning I was on my way to the hospital and I turned on the radio and the very first words I heard were in the form of a question as the announcer said, have you ever thought what it might like and what, it, what you might like to get rich? Well, I suppose I was a little bit broker that day than at some other times in my life and I decided to listen further to what the announcer had to say. And it turned out to be a program by Earl Nightingale. In case you do not know who he is, he is a radio essayist, a man who has a certain amount of knowledge, a certain amount of wisdom, and a man who is endowed with a great deal of common sense. And he gets paid to share that knowledge and wisdom and common sense with those of us who are willing to listen to what he had to say. I decided to listen to what he had to say in that essay, and I became intrigued by the essay that was delivered that day. When I got home, I went by, called the sponsor for the essay, and asked for a copy of the day's essay. And later on, I sat down and reread the things that I had heard. And the gist of what he had to say was this. He said, to get rich, one needs to do three, three things. First of all, one must make up your mind that you can do it if others can. Secondly, he said, decide on how much you want, how wealthy you really want to be, how rich you want to be. Decide how much you want. And then he said, find a need and fix well, as I said, I, I was interested in what he had to say and discovered to my amazement that there was a great deal of wisdom to be found in these words of that particular essay. For in reality, they provide three essential steps for an individual who desires to uh, accumulate a certain amount of wealth and establish for himself or herself uh, the basic qualities of a wealthy life. Well, after all, they are nothing more than a continuation of the old philosophy which has been handed down from generation to generation that said if you build a better mousetrap, people will build a path to your door in order to buy it. Now, the more I thought about it, the more convinced I was of the truth of this idea and the truth of these words. And then I began to see in them a basic philosophy of life which is worthy of some careful consideration. The first is that there are two kinds of riches. There is the kind of riches of which Mr. Nightingale was speaking, the kind of wealth we know as the material possessions of life. 
there is a kind of wealth that provides us the resources we need to do some of the things we'd like to do, to enjoy some of the things we'd like to enjoy, to live a life in a more luxurious state than many of us are privileged to live, and yet most of us would enjoy it. There is a kind of wealth that uh, expresses itself in the things we do, in the places we go, the kind of house in which we live, and the kind of lifestyle to which we have addressed ourselves. Nothing wrong with wealth, because it provides a kind of life that most of us would enjoy and most of us would like to experience. However, there is a second kind of wealth, the kind of wealth of which Jesus spoke in the words of our church. And even though he did not particularly use the phrase, uh, I like to think of this as spiritual capital or spiritual wealth. And uh, not as though the two are in conflict with one another. Not as though the two are diametrically opposed to each other. It's not an either-or proposition. It is not to say that you can't have one with, uh, and the other, that you can't have both of them and enjoy a wealthy lifestyle materially and at the same time be but less spiritual. But there is a basic difference that needs to come into our consideration. And the basic difference is simply this. Material wealth at its best is only temporary. It only lasts for a short while and then it's gone. It only goes so far in meeting the needs of the human life. It only does so much in providing us the resources we need for the realities of life with which we're facing. Let me illustrate it in this way. One Monday morning I was in the bank in the town in which I was serving. I happened to run into one of the members of the church, and through the years it has been my privilege to enjoy the trust and confidence of certain individuals. And I suppose I cherish this as much as anything else in all the world, and I guess I guard it more meticulously than anything else or any other responsibility I have. And if a person shares a confidence with me, they can rest assured that it will stay within my mind and in my heart and go absolutely no further. Uh, than my own understanding and my own contemplation. Well, uh, the man said, Charles, I want to show you something. And he was on his way back to his safety deposit box, and we walked back to the vault. Uh, and you know, this is, is quite a step as far as anybody's concerned, because we don't share our safety deposit boxes with anybody. But we went into the, into the, the vault, and, and literally he had a number of boxes, one stacked on top of the other, it's really uh, not just one safety deposit, but several boxes. And he opened those safety deposit boxes and began to pull out the gold. And I have never seen such a beautiful side of gold in all my life. There were literally numbers of safety deposit boxes filled with gold. I have hardly idea how much the gold was worth. I don't think he did. But he, he looked at it and, and admired it, and you could feel the the admiration, on the, the, the expression on his face, and I couldn't help but feel the admiration on his face, and a whole lot of envy. But as I looked at it, I, I thought, yeah, this is something of which to be proud. But before the end of the week, he and I walked across the hills of Forest Hill, and we laid his wife to bed in the mound, freshly soaking, and breaking up to her convenience. 
no pre-warning whatsoever. Uh, she suddenly died and very well. Now, I couldn't help things. You know, as proud as he was of the possessions that he enjoyed, I thought I had a feeling that the thing that meant more to him than anything else in all of the world as he stood for the open thing was the realization that somewhere along the way he discovered the truth of the faith. And as he walked through the valleys of the Sabbath of he used the presence of God in a different sort of way uh, to what most of us have Some years later, I was uh, on the uh, used car lot, which belonged to a certain member of the congregation I was serving at that time. And he said to me, Charles, I want to show you something. He went into an old storage house by the side of his used car lot, and there were, were thousands and thousands of dollars worth of antique classic cars. You know, I have a love for cars anyway, and I, I couldn't help but, but stand there in admiration as I looked at that shining example of human ingenuity and realized something of the accumulation he had and of the value that those would have in years to come. Just two days later, he called me and said, Charles, come by and talk to you. And I went by his office and we sat down and he said, my wife and I have received some of the most distressing news we've ever heard. His only son had betrayed the trust of his father. And there he was, struggling, trying to uh, reconcile the broken heart and the troubles that he felt with the love he experienced for his son. He wanted some answer. And he turned in the only direction he knew to the church and the faith of his spirit. And I couldn't help but feel once again, you know, there's something about one's faith. It provides the resources we need at the time we need them the most. And it matters not so much how large of capital we make it. And life throws us a curse. And we don't know how to do this. We can always stand in the presence of God and realize how much God loves us and how careful it is to be with the frailty of our life and our community. And they are walking down the street of the community in which I was living. There was a fellow there town who had been one of the most powerful figures in the state of Alabama in political circles for a number of years. I called his name, he was a member of the church that I served and, and a, one of the, the great men that I've been privileged to know. And I went in as I normally do and went back into his private office and we sat and talked for just a little while. And, and then he began to tell me, he said, Charles, let me show you something. And he opened a drawer and he pulled out a, a great deal of gold and then he looked in another closet and he showed me some other accumulations and possessions that he had accumulated through the years. And, and then we began to talk about his experiences as a political individual and, and the contribution he had made and the resources he had brought to the county and the community of his career. And they told me a little bit about what kind of future he had. Not very long after that, I was by the hospital one morning. He was in the intensive care unit, and it wasn't until just a few days later that he was dead. And I realized once again, as we so often do, that all the greatest resource we have in life is the faith that we possess. 
the confidence we experience in the reality of God and the knowledge of God's love for us and the realization that there are some things in life uh, that are good and some things in life that are enjoyable and some things in life that are meaningful and they provide a sense of happiness as each of these individuals demonstrated in their character there comes a time in every individual's life in which we need something on which we can build our hope, something upon which we can depend, or something upon which we can rely to realize that regardless of what life may have done to us, or regardless of what life may have thrown against us, there is still that there that will enable us to survive and to, to carry on and to be what we want to do. I began to think about those words of, of Earl Nightingale and, and realize, you know, here is a basic philosophy that will carry us through not only in the material possessions of life, but they provide the spiritual resources we need for the kind of spiritual capital we'd like to have in the struggle of life. First of all, he said, uh, one must make up your mind that if others have done it, you can do it. So, once again, there's nothing in life that provides a greater blessing and more meaning than a greater sense of satisfaction than to live with the same of God. As I look back across the years of ministry, one of the things that stands out in my life as much as anything else are the great saints with whom I've been privileged to be to look at their lives, to realize how strong they were, how strong they are, the contribution they have made, the contribution they have given, and the influence that they have as their life casts its shadow across the horizon. And realize that there is something very special about the sense of God. Most of us look at lives such as this and we say to ourselves, I can't live that time. I can't do the same things that others are doing. I, I simply cannot measure up in the way in which I would like to measure up. Without ever stopping to realize somebody else has. If somebody else has achieved the success, we can do it. You know, there's a story of the New Testament. Uh, which describes human nature in its most perfect way. Remember the message of the two thieves on the cross? These two men represent human nature in its totality. On the one hand, there is the one who cursed God, who cursed his fellow man, who cursed the predicament in which he found himself, who blamed everybody else for the mistakes that he had made and for the end to which he had come. Never one time did he look at himself to see what kind of life he lived and what kind of man he was. Railing out against the crucifixion and against those that were crucified. That one area is human nature. The other area is exemplified by the other thing. Who even though he was guilty of the crime for which he'd been sent, and even though he bore the shame and disgrace of the kind of life he had lived and 
and the suffering of the cross of the Jesus Never one time did he try to lay the responsibility of suffering. Never one time did he really bemoan the circumstances under which he found himself. Instead, the writer said he looked into the place of Christ and said, When you come into the kingdom, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, This is the God be with you. I think I'm speak to you. If somebody else has done it, if you have seen the lives of the, the saints and, and know what their life can mean, it's better. The power to enjoy. For God who provided the resources for them provides the resources for us. The same God that that carried for someone else will carry for you. The same God who invested in them invested in them. Somebody else then he said you must decide uh, how much you really want. How wealthy do you want to be, he said. How rich do you want to be? How much is that to Well, let me look at it in this way. The question we come in the spiritual world, in the spiritual world, how much is God do you really want? How much of God do you need? And how much of life are you going to try to to yourself? You know, human nature is basically the same. We're all pretty much alike, whether we want to admit it or not. Human nature is basically the same thing. We, we, we live maybe on a different level, but, but inwardly we're all pretty much the same thing. And we face uh, certain basic issues that are common to us all. First of all, we are all tempted by the presence of sin. You can call it original sin, you can call it what you want to, but temptation is common to us all. Every one of us stands in the face of evil and are tempted by the allure of the e world of evil in which we live. Every one of us has a certain amount of sorrow and suffering that inevitably we're going to if you're not already walked through the valleys of the shadows, you're going to. It's that. Every person in the world, as soon as we are born, begins to face the sorrows and sufferings of our humanity. And then there is, for each of us, a sense of frustration and anxiety arising out of our human situation and the reality of our humanity. And we must decide for ourselves. How we're going to cope with these issues. How we're going to deal with life as it unfolds. As inevitably it will. We must decide for ourselves how much of God's Spirit we need in order to deal with life in the way in which life deserves to be given. The thing we need to remember here is we can't wait until an emergency arises and it's circumstances in this place. You have to prepare in advance. You have to lay up a little bit here, today, and tomorrow, and the next day. You have to hold a little bit day by day. And the way it happens is that you do. 
it comes through reading the Bible, through sharing in the worship experience of the church, and through the blessings of prayer that God has opened for us. So that we decide for ourselves how much we want. And then he says, find a need and fit it. Well, this was a little bit harder for me than the other two. Because Christianity is not, hear me if you will, Christianity is not a religion doing. I don't care what anybody says. We're not saved by what we do. It doesn't work that way. So I began to think about it. And then I realized that even though our salvation lies not so much in what we do, as what we believe and the amount of trust we have. There is another side that we need not, we ought not forget, and that is simply this. The more we do in God's name, and the more we exemplify the Spirit of God in our relationship with one another, if you will, the more of God's Spirit we feel within our own it makes sense it's true the more we do in the name of God and the more of God's spirit we exemplify in our relationship with one another the more God's spirit we feel within our own soul and the more confidence and assurance we have in the struggles of our life let me, let me illustrate it with what is to me one of the most beautiful stories of the New Testament as far as I'm concerned, you may agree or disagree, you're privileged. But as far as I'm concerned, the greatest saint who ever lived was St. Peter. And that includes the Apostle Paul. St. Peter was as human as any man who ever lived. He was a spineless individual. He was a scoundrel. He was a rough and tough somebody. He was not the kind of fellow that cultured individuals invite into their home. Not the kind of man we want our children to grow up and emulate. But in reality, St. Peter lived the final years of his life as an example of God's chosen servant. And you know the turning point of his life? The turning point of his life was this. On the night of the, before the crucifixion, remember, he betrayed his master. I never knew it and he said, curse God. But I know it wasn't. I, I wasn't with that fellow. I never knew it. The real man The real person that he was. Not long after that, he went out on the side of the world and thought about what he did. away from that mountainside, he saw Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Peter, do you love me? And all of a sudden, life changed. All of a sudden, his remorse found forgiveness. 
the turning point came. That just it took me to gain the certain stuff for his sake. God asks only of us to live our life in the way that He wants us to do. He doesn't ask me to look at the standards that you have set and try to fit myself into the mold that you have chosen for me to. Neither does He ask you to fit yourself into the mold that I may have chosen for you to. He doesn't say to us, try to do what everybody else is doing and live like the great saints of yesteryear of which we've already spoken. He doesn't say that at all. He knows me. He knows how weak I am. He knows the frailty of my human nature. He knows my imperfections. He knows what I can do and what I can't do. And all he says to me is, Take that which I have invested in you and use it to the best of your ability. And you will be what I want you to be. And you will have what I want you to have. And you will know what I want you to have. You see, that's all he asks for them. To find what you can do, the life you can live, and the person you can be. And then you will discover for yourself the resources to face whatever issues of life you have brought to face under whatever circumstances you find yourself. And you have the assurance of God's love. You have the confidence of God's spirit. And you have the riches you need for the uncertainty of the truth of the world. Help us out, Heavenly Father, in the struggles of life from day to day. Never to lose sight of the promises you have made and enable us through your help and understanding to develop ourselves into the kind of person you have us be and thus experience for our life the joy of faith that you have promised us to Jesus Christ. Parties in his name we pray. Amen.